everybody. I hope you're excited to be in church this morning. I am excited to be here. I'm excited to share God's word with you. And uh, I think it's funny, I, I have, as a youth pastor, I, I, I get to connect with other youth pastors around the state and around uh, the nation. And it's pretty, pretty typical that youth pastors preach um, in, in holiday season. So like come December 28th and 29th or whatever that Sunday is, my youth pastor friends from all over the country, we're going to be preaching after a crazy busy Christmas season for senior pastors and leaders of churches um, just because holidays can be busy. And so today um, I think it's fun because Wisconsin youth pastors don't preach post-Christmas, they preach post-deer hunting season. Amen? <laughs> So uh, I, get, I get the task of preaching to you guys today. It's so much fun. I'm excited to be here. And whether or not that's the reason or not doesn't matter. I'm excited to be here. Are you guys excited to be in church this morning? Awesome. So just want to wish you a happy holidays a week early because Thanksgiving's this week, but deer hunting was a week earlier. I don't do it. The amount of outdoorsing I do is pretty limited to this red buffalo plaid shirt that I'm wearing. And uh, so that's about it. Um, but uh, I hope you got a deer. And if you did, I'd love to hear about it. Maybe. Okay. Anyways. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to be here with you this morning. And I just got a quick question. I got to know who we're working with today. Uh, have you this year yet started listening to Christmas music? Show of hands if you started listening to Christmas music. Okay, okay, all right. How, how, how many of you can put your hands down? How many of you have, uh, that, that is a strictly post-Thanksgiving endeavor for your, you and your family? Raise your hand if that's you. All right, wow. So, so okay, so um, uh, I have a confession to make, okay? Um, I am of the strictly post-Thanksgiving um, family, I guess you could call it, because we're a tight-knit fraternity, okay? So we, 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 we strongly believe that it's post-Thanksgiving. And, and here's the thing is, uh, publicly in front of the church, uh, the Bible tells us that we are to confess our sins one to another. And so I have a confession that I slipped up this week, okay? Um, the, uh, not the Bible, but common wisdom tells us that you make mistakes when you're hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. And there was a day at church, because it's deer hunting, I was the only one in the office. I forgot my lunch, and so I was sitting here by myself, 2 p.m., hadn't eaten anything, and I accidentally clicked on Michael Buble's Christmas album. And it may or may not have played, okay? And I, I, and I might have, may or may not have liked it, but... Um, this week, all of us can unite together uh, on Friday that it's Christmas season. Amen. Okay, so I hope I hope that you uh, hope that you're um, excited about Christmas season coming up. And as Pastor Paul said, we'd love for you to join us uh, every Sunday, every Wednesday, or whatever. But specifically, invite some people. People are always more receptive and open to the message about Jesus during this time, and we'd love to see some new faces and get to see them. Amen. Amen. Hey, I, I'm excited to be here today. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach to us today, closing, as Pastor Paul said, our series on Revelation, the seven churches. And so if you've got a Bible, why don't you open it up and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter number three. Revelation, chapter number three. And while you turn there, um, I just want to echo what Pastor Paul said earlier about us being thankful as pastors and leaders of this church um, as I was worshiping this morning, I just, I, in this sanctuary, it always reminds me of, of different stages of my life because I've been a part of this church now for over 10 years and uh, half of those as, as, a, as a pastor and as a leader, uh, ministry leader, and, and half of those as, as a student. And um, I, I love um, just thinking about all the different people and all the different phases of life that we have here in this church. I was over with our kids this morning. As Pastor Paul said, I'm the youth and kids pastor. And I love to, to see because... Um, 
We have kids that are ages three. We have kids that are ages eight. We have helpers that are ages 13. We have helpers that are 18. We have helpers in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And I look around this room and I see people of all different lives and backgrounds and a whole bunch of different things. And I just love to be a part of a church um, that, that is all together under one name, and that's Jesus. And um, it, whether I'm a pastor or whether I'm a leader or whether I'm just a student, I've always been thankful to be a part of this church and this family. And I hope that you are too. Are you thankful? Okay, good. We're, we're glad that you're here. And if this is your first time here or second time here and you're not sure that you're a part of the family, well, you're welcome. Either way, you're a part of our family. We love you, okay? Um, but uh, anyways, today I'm really excited to, uh, to preach to you out of Revelation chapter 3. If you're there, uh, I'm going to read it to us. If not, you can take a look at the screens. Today we are going to conclude with the church in Philadelphia. I'm going to start in Revelation 3 verse 7. It says this, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and when he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but they're liars. And I will actually make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon, so hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. To the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Will you pray with me this morning and then we'll kind of unpack all that. God, we thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this Sunday service that we get to be here and worshiping you. Thank you that we get to lift up your name, that we get to join together in faith and in prayer. Thank you that we get to open up this word today. And we pray that it would speak to us, that it would teach us, that we would learn. But more than we would learn, we pray that we would be transformed by the truth of your word and all that it says to us. Help us today to grow and become more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Today, I want to I want to talk to you. Uh, I have a title for this message. It's uh, the, the, the Church of Philadelphia, which means brotherly love, and uh, it's it's the main thing that a lot of people, as we read through, maybe took from it is uh, that there is an open door. So this message is titled "Love is an Open Door." Shout out to Frozen. Okay, has anybody went to Frozen number? Okay, anybody see Frozen two this week? Okay, cool. No, not many. Everybody was deer hunting. Okay, cool. Um, or or maybe. The, you're adults and you don't like animated movies. Okay, that could be possible too. But either way, title today, Love is an Open Door. And I was thinking as I was preparing for this message, um, thinking about doors. And I think they're so interesting because like, they, they, they can do one of two things. They can either be an extension of the wall and basically shut everybody, everybody and everything and noise and all of that out. Or... Um, it can be an open invitation to say, like, you can pass right on through, and, and, and it's just an extension of a room. So uh, I, I was thinking about doors, and I was thinking about a couple different times in my life, and I'm going to tell you one of them today, um, that, that a door was not really a, at my command. And, like, normally, if, if you own the door, you can 
open it and it, and it just works for you, right? Or, or if you can, you can, you're in charge of, of your own doors, if that makes sense. And let me tell you what I mean. There was a time just a few weeks ago that I was uh, hanging out with a couple of our best friends who also happened to be uh, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, uh, TJ and Lindsay. And we both have two-year-old daughters. My daughter's name is Annie and theirs is Ruth. And they're, they're really close friends. They love each other even at such a young age. And um, I, I heard some wise advice from, from Pastor Paul, our senior pastor. And, and, and uh, this advice was not biblical but it was very wise and very true and it's it was this that if you uh, have a two-year-old and they're quiet for more than about 15 seconds you immediately need to check on the circumstances because things could be getting out of hand and so there I, we were hanging out with one night with with uh, our friends and brother and sister TJ and Lindsay Lindsay we're, we're sitting in the living room and our daughters are playing in front of us and then they wanted to go to my daughter's room which is which is not too far away from where I sit in the living room uh, I, I can see their room and so we thought it would be fine they go play and and that's great, uh, but we have this rule um, it, we call the open door policy that, that you're not allowed to, to close the door because nothing good can happen behind closed doors. So um, the thing is, though, that uh, we were enjoying conversation and hanging out, and so when our two-year-old shut the door, we tried and to, to keep the door open, and when we say we tried, I, I mean that I said, uh, hey, girls, open that door, and then when they didn't listen, it was like, ah, well, they're probably fine. They're good kids, you know? And uh, so we, we were just sitting there talking. We're just letting them be and, and figuring that everything is fine. And, um, th I mean, they, they left the door shut. They're playing in there. And, we're you know, after about ten minutes, we were like, wow, things, they've been really quiet in there. Usually, like, I mean, if you hear things crashing, you know they're at least playing with toys. But if they're silent, things could be really getting out of hand. And so we're like, all right. My wife and I were like, all right, we're going to go check on the situation. And so they didn't open the door. It had been closed. We couldn't see into the room. And so we go in there, and we open the door. And... Uh, my wife Carrie and I just about hit the floor with laughter because when we opened the door, let's take a look at this picture and show you what we found, okay? <laughs> Those are our two, that's my daughter and my niece, and uh, what we have there is every single item of clothing that is in that dresser on the floor, and all over their face, you might be tempted to think that that's sunscreen, no, that's desitin, otherwise known as butt paste, <laughs> butt rash paste, and so we opened the door to find this, and that is why we have an open door policy. Can I have an amen? <laughs> wow, so that was, that was a real treat cleaning that off because it's not soap that just washes right off your face uh, or your clothing or anything like that. So um, yeah, that was, that was a fun time. And uh, we reinstated the open door policy no matter how comfortable our chairs or conversation may be. <laughs> and so uh, today, uh, I want to talk to you about this open door, and, and, and love is an open door, and uh, what really was going on in this book of Revelation. And uh, the, the thing about the book of Revelation is that oftentimes when we open to it, or when we re start to read it, we get um, maybe a little bit confused. And we read this, and we think, like, you know, the stuff about Jesus, I can get down with that. I can understand that Jesus walks into a place, people want to hear him talk, people want to be healed, he prays for people, oh my goodness, they're healed. It's amazing. That, that's pretty easy for me to grasp. Or maybe you read the Old Testament and you're like, Noah getting animals on the ark, I learned that in Sunday school, I can grasp that. And then you read Revelation and it's like, I think I'm just going to slowly close my Bible because I'm not sure what I'm talking about. Or maybe we'll go back to the book of John where everything is fun and I get it, you know. But I think I, as I was preparing for this message and as we, as we have been doing this series, I've been digging a little bit deeper and, and seeing that the stuff, especially at the beginning of Revelation, really the information is all there. It's all uh, accessible, but it's, it's, it's layered and it takes time to, to dig deep and, and, and really understand what's going on. 
And so uh, I, I did some of this, this digging, and I found that there's a number of different layers to this understanding of the book of Revelation. And the first one is, is that we have to understand what the author is talking about. The author is John, the apostle, John, the, the, the former disciple that had walked with Jesus, that had seen him face to face. And what happens in this book of Revelation is, is he has been living his life and people want to silence him as a Christian. And so they send him to this, this island called Patmos and he's on exile. He's there all by himself. And uh, while he's there on this island, uh, God appears to him and he gives him this vision and tells him, hey, I'm going to show you something and I need you to write it down. And what it is, is it's, it's what becomes this book of revelation, which means apocalypse or what apocalypse means is unveiling or disclosure. And so really what happens is God says, John, I'm going to give you a vision. And what this vision is, is not just something about you, but I'm going to unveil to you what I see. When I see time sprawled out, from the beginning to end, this is what I see. And in the first few chapters, he says that this, when I look at churches, when I look at individuals, when I look at th this is what really is. He pulls back the curtains on what, what, what God is really like. He pulls back the curtains on what he sees when he sees the churches. And so what, what, what some of these are is, is, is John writes down that he sees Jesus, and he sees Jesus as the human being that he was, but, but way more glorious, way more beautiful, way more bright, so bright that he can't even look at it. He, he sees him so beautiful, so incredible. It, it says that this is the same Jesus that I saw in bodily form here on earth, but when I saw him, he was covered with skin and bone. Now he's fully God. He looks like the same person. I still recognize him. He's still the same one that I walked on this earth with, but now he's not veiled in humanity. He's, he's beautiful. He's glorious. He's everything that I can, can look at, and I, he's so bright, in fact, I even can't look at him. And he goes on to talk about a couple different things that he sees. He sees seven stars and seven lampstands, which turns out to be that the seven stars represent the, the angels of the churches, or most scholars believe that they are the pastors or the messengers, the leaders of these churches. And, and, and there's also uh, seven lampstands, and lampstands are representative of, of the churches. And when, when the light of the world, when the individuals, God's people, get together when they come they stand together as one lamp on a lampstand to shine before their community and so Jesus is saying to John this is what really is I'm going to give you full disclosure I'm going to totally unveil everything that we see and I'm going to need you John to write it all down now he says that I'm going to give you messages to give to the messengers of these churches I'm going to give you messages to each one of these lampstands, each one of these seven churches in these seven communities. And so John hears from Jesus, sees what's going on, and writes it all down, then sends the first few as letters to the churches. And next we need to know not just what is John, uh, what is happening here. John is, is receiving all that from God and sending it out, but we need to know who he's writing to, and that is the church at Philadelphia. And a couple things we need to know about Philadelphia is, first of all, that just like it is in America, it's known as the city of brotherly love. They're known as a city for their love for one another. They take care of each other. They love each other. They think about others. And they think deeply that, that, that we need to help people find Jesus because we love them. And so this city actually, or this church rather, is using this city of Philadelphia as a mission city, as a missionary church to reach a different culture. The people that lived in this city were Greek speaking. They were Greek. They were different than the Jews. They were different than the people that had become God's people. And so they saw these people and they saw the message of Jesus and they said, we need to spread this beyond where it is right now. 
So we're going to go to this city called Philadelphia. It's a different culture. It's a different language. But we love them, and they need to hear about Jesus. And so we're going to go there. We're going to love on them. We're going to take care of them. And we're going to be the people that we're supposed to be as people of God, the city of brotherly love. We're going to be people of brotherly love. And we're going to spread this gospel to this new city. So that's what you need to know about his people, but also geographically there's something important about it, and that's that the city of Philadelphia was located along a tectonic plate. And a tectonic plate, if you've done any research or study or remember back to to high school, uh, a tectonic plate is known for a couple of things, and first of all being that they are home to many volcanoes. They're home to volcanoes, and that was the truth with Philadelphia. They were their home to volcanoes, and, and now when we get to the writing of this story, the volcanoes are dormant, and they're no longer uh, exploding or throwing lava all over the place, but they used to be active, and what, what, when a, volta- a volcano excuse me, erupts, it throws lava everywhere, and when that lava becomes hard, it actually becomes rich, fertile soil. And so when people found these dormant volcanoes and when they found this rich, fertile soil, they set up camp in this, in this place and they, they have a city, a, a city called Philadelphia. And it becomes a great trade, uh, along a trade route, it becomes the center of the grape growing industry because it's, it's rich, fertile soil allows it to be a place where they can grow crops. Now, the, the, the problem with it being along a tectonic plate is not only are volcanoes there that created the rich, fertile soil, but also along tectonic plates is normally the site of many earthquakes. And right after the life of Jesus, in, in the year A.D. 17, there was an earthquake that destroyed the entire area. This city and all of its surrounding areas were completely ruined. They were, they were made to be rubble, and, and something was set loose with that earthquake that for every day for decades, there would not be such large seismic activity. It wouldn't be a, a destructive earthquake, but every day for decades after this earthquake, there would be tremors, little earthquakes, mini earthquakes. And that being said, they couldn't live there. Or they couldn't function there properly because they, they would want homes and shelters, but they couldn't build homes and shelters or keep them because they might come crumbling down with one of the tremors that came daily. They weren't able to build businesses or really build their lives or feel settled there because every single day a tremor would come and they would be left questioning, am I going to make it through today? Is my home going to crumble down on top of me? Is my business going to be standing when I go to work the next day? They had no idea and there was no way of knowing because their life was so unknown. And I can imagine living a life like that would be extremely tiring. Last summer, we had some flooding in this area, and maybe some of you were affected by that. My basement was flooded, and it wasn't a a, a crippling thing for my home or anything like that. Maybe some of you it was, but even though it didn't take any of my stuff, it it was a sleepless three days and nights to stress and worry. Now, that was three days. This was decades of life for this church, where they didn't know if their stuff was going to be standing in the morning. They didn't know if they were going to be alive. They had lost family members. They had lost neighbors under the rubble of crumbling buildings and things like that. And so I can imagine for them it would be tiring. And so it's important for us to know about Philadelphia because each one of these words that Jesus gives to the churches is very timely. It's very helpful. And we'll unpack that part in a little bit. But I want to get to the beginning of what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3. The beginning of verse 7 says this, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. And I'm going to stop right there because I want to point something out to us today. I want to point out to you, I say this to my youth kids all the time, and, and, and I hope it's helpful because it's helpful for me. The whole Bible 
is actually written about one God. His, his name is, is, is God. But the whole Bible points to Jesus. And I want to prove it to you. I remember growing up that, that I remembered reading the Old Testament and I assumed that that was about God the Father. And then there's four books called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those four are about Jesus. And then Jesus dies and then he's kind of done, but he's up in heaven and it's all good. And then the rest of the book is about the Holy Spirit and we can look back at Jesus, but he's kind of done now and the Father's done and it's a new era. And I want to show you today through this one verse that Jesus is what the theme of the whole entire Bible is. And before we get to that, I want to point out a couple things that prove that the, the whole Bible is about Jesus. And maybe you've heard of the story or you've read the story. You were in Sunday school and you heard the story of Noah and the ark. That's not just some Genesis Bible story that allows us to think about animals and two by two and building a big boat. That's actually a story that points to Jesus being that there is one way to be saved from the flood. It's to get on that ark. Jesus is the true and better ark because there's one way to be saved from what is coming to this world, the destruction that's coming, and that's Jesus. Also with the story of David and Goliath, oftentimes we hear it preached that you're David and you can defeat your Goliath no matter how big and how bad it seems. Now that's, that's fine and that's good, but really what the story of David and Goliath is is that Goliath is sin and that we were all the ones on the sidelines too afraid to do anything with it, unable to do anything with it. It was far too big of a problem for us to deal with and Jesus is David and he comes, beats it over the head, cuts off its head <laughs> and he wins. That story is about, about Jesus. There's a story that we talked about a couple weeks ago on a Wednesday night of Hosea and Gomer. That story is, is not about a prophet that marries a prostitute and then is really desperate so he wants to go back and get her. No, it's a story about a man being commanded to go and get his wife because he loves her so much. No matter what she's done, he loves her. That story is about us. No matter how far we run from God, no matter how many mistakes that we make, God is still coming after us, and that, he's doing it through Jesus. You see, the whole Bible, every story, Old Testament, New Testament, all of it points to Jesus. And I want to use this one scripture here in, in, in Revelation to actually point that out as well. And it says, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. First of all, the word holy there, the word holy means different. It means separate, above all, blameless pure. Basically saying that this man never made a mistake, he's faultless. So if you want to know the way to live, live like Jesus. The Bible says that we are called to be holy as he is holy. Meaning that if you want to know the way to live your life here, do as, as best as you can to get as close to Jesus as you can. And the more you live like him, the holier you'll be. He's the way to live. It says also the truth the word truth is pretty self-explanatory, but it means real or genuine as opposed to phony, imitation, or fake. This word is to say that if of everything in this world, the only thing that's really true, the only thing that is really satisfactory, the only thing that is really lasting is Jesus. He is holy and he is true. He also holds the key of David. Now this is actually a quote from the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet during the time of King Hezekiah, and what he says and does in Isaiah chapter 22 is he is prophesying about some happenings in King Hezekiah's palace. King Hezekiah has a current palace administrator. His name is Shebna, and God is going to expose him and, and kick him out of his current role. And he is going to elevate a man by the name of Eliakim because he has been faithful in every role that he has been given. He's been faithful to God. 
And so Isaiah, in, chapter, in the book of Isaiah chapter 22, prophesies, saying, Shebna, you're losing your job, but Eliakim, he is going to be raised up to the palace administrator of King Hezekiah, and to him, Hezekiah will give the key of David, which is referenced here again. And what that key of David was, was essentially saying, listen, if you want to get in front of King Hezekiah, if you want to get into the king's court, if you want to get into the king's presence, there's one way to do it. You can't beg, you can't impress somebody. The one person you've got to talk to is Eliakim. He has the key. And Jesus says, I am holy. I'm the way to live. I am the only thing that is genuine and real and true. And then he says, I am the only one that has the true and better key of David. Now, Eliakim, that was a shadow of what was to come. He was the one that allowed people into the king's presence when it was Hezekiah. But with God, the true king, the all-powerful world's king, the one that rules the entire universe, there is one way into his presence, and that is me. I hold the key of David. Now, when I hear this, it's, it's really cool, it's really interesting, but what makes it even more so is it's, it, it points back to another thing that Jesus said in his life it, it's in, it happens in John chapter 14. He says, I am holy. I'm the way to live. He says, I am the truth. I'm the, the, what's genuine and real in this world. And if anybody wants to get to the Father, it's through me. It sounds like John chapter 14 when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So right here in this tiny little half of a verse, Revelation 3, the beginning of verse 7, we have references to 2 Kings, where Hezekiah is the king, and all of these happenings with Eliakim happens. We have a reference to Isaiah chapter 22, when he points to the true and better key of David that Jesus now holds. We have John chapter 14, the way, the truth, and the life that Jesus declares about himself. And now after Jesus is, has died, he's resurrected, he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's speaking to John, saying, I am still the way, the truth, and the life. So Old Testament, Gospels, and New Testament, all of it points back to Jesus. One of my favorite things to do when I read my Bible is, is play a game. It's like where's Waldo, except it's where's Jesus. Every page points to Jesus. Now that we know who's the one talking, I want to point out to us what, what, what Jesus actually said, the verdict that he gives on these churches. Out of seven churches, two of them have all positive reviews. When Jesus looks at the churches, he gives five of them some encouragement and also some rebuke. When he looks at Philadelphia, he gives no rebuke. He gives a positive verdict. And it starts in verse 7. The second half of verse 7 says this. What he opens, that's Jesus, what Jesus opens, no one can shut. And what Jesus shuts, no one can open. And he says, Philadelphia, I know your deeds. And see, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So Jesus says that I am the one that gets the final say on what happens with the door that signifies open door of opportunity and open door of invitation or a closed door that separates you from everybody else. And he said, listen, I'm setting before you this is the final say. Nobody else gets a word on this. I set before you, the church at Philadelphia, an open door. Now remember, they were a church that was built on the fact that they wanted to be an outreach, a mission-oriented church to this Greek-speaking culture, this Greek-speaking city. People that had never before been included on the things of God, they wanted to reach these people, and God says, yes, 
you can have an open door. And here's why. It's not because you're special. It's not because you're talented. It's not because you're really uh, good preachers. It's not because anything else other than the fact that I know your deeds, Jesus says. He says, I know your deeds, and I see that you have little strength, but you've held on. He says, because I can see that you have little strength, I can see that you're weak. I can see that you're tired. I can see that you're concerned with the fact that every day your stuff is falling on top of you. I can see the fact that you can't settle in your land. I can see the fact that you're weak, tired, and you're wondering whether or not I'm even supposed to be here. But because you have done all this and you've kept my word and you've not denied my name, I'm going to give you the opportunity that you came to this city for, an open door of influence in your city, an open door to be the city of brotherly love, to take care of the people that need to hear about me. I am setting before you that open door. Why? Because you have held on. Then he goes on to say in verse number 9, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but they are liars. I'm going to pause right there because what's important to know about the Jews is for generation after generation previous to this, the Jews were the specific only chosen people of God. The Jews were the ones that got God's covenant, got God's blessing, got God's favor while everyone else was left out. And now after Jesus, Jesus comes to the world and he says, whoever wants to come to me, they can. doesn't matter your, your race, doesn't matter your nationality, doesn't matter your life story, your background. Whoever will can come to me and be saved. And so these Greek-speaking people, the church at Philadelphia, lay claim to that. They hold on to that and they say, we are the people of God. But the Jewish people are thinking, no, you're not because we are the people of God. And nobody else is included. They're thinking back to their ancestors. And God says, no, 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 no. That's not true. And if you think that, if you're still holding on to the Old Testament as as the law, as the way that you need to live, if you're not believing in my son Jesus, you're practicing a false religion or at least living it out in a false manner. He says, you're of the synagogue of Satan. That's pretty harsh words. And then he goes on to say that I will make these people that are of the synagogue of Satan, people that think that they are the exclusive club that God loves, I will make them come And fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. These enemies, these people that are trying to shut you up. The people that are trying to get you to not believe that you are people of God. We are the people of God. Those people, because you've held on to me, I'm going to open up their eyes. And they're going to come and they're going to fall at your feet. And they're going to say, we realize, we recognize that you are the people too. That God loves. And he proved it in Jesus. An opportunity for unity that had literally never been there before. Because in the Old Testament, so many people were excluded from from the favor and covenant and relationship with God. And then when Jesus came, he opens it up to everybody, but the Jews hold tightly to the law. And they don't think that Jesus is real. They don't think he's true. And he says, no, no, no. I'm going to make all of you come together. Bow down in unity and realize that I love you. And I love you all. That opportunity for unity comes because they held on. Verse 10 and 11 says this, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Since you have endured patiently, I will keep you from the hour of trial that the whole world is going to face. I love this because it says that if you pass the first test, you don't have to take another. 
He said, listen, because you have listened to me and because I've seen you already, hold on, I've seen you endure patiently. Listen, you don't have to worry about this hour of testing, this hour of trial, this hour of difficulty that's coming on the rest of the world. They're going to have to struggle. They're going to have to learn. But I've seen you already. I know that you endure patiently. And because of that, I'm going to spare you from that. I want to be the type of Christian in my own life that passes the test the first time and doesn't have to learn and learn and learn lesson after lesson the hard way, right? He says, if you just hold on to me, if you'll endure patiently the hard times that you have, you don't have to take another test. You get to pass it the first time and I'll spare you from the rest. And that's what happens at Philadelphia. And I love the way he ends it. I'm going to read to you verse 12 and 13 again. The one who is victorious... I will make a pillar in the temple of God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. That's the finish and the conclusion of the thing that he says to Philadelphia, the letter that is written, the words of Jesus to Philadelphia. Now, I love this not just this letter, but every letter in these churches of Revelation, or every, every one of these churches receives this in a letter, to the one who is victorious. Because they assume that as a Christian, if you just hold on to God, you're going to be victorious. That's the only way that you can fail is if you give up. And I want to I use this as an illustration. There's, I, I'm a big sports fan. Anybody else in here a sports fan? I'm a big sports fan, and so over the course of my life, I have watched hundreds, probably thousands of games of basketball and football and soccer and baseball, thousands. And uh, I'm, I'm one of those weird sports fans. I, I like the Packers. I like the Brewers. I like the Badgers. I like the Bucks. But I don't, I don't just like watching my teams. I actually like sports just for sports. So it doesn't matter if my team's playing or not. I love everything. And uh, so, like I said, I've seen probably thousands of games in my life, and there's a few games specifically that stick out, but one of them that sticks out is actually one that I didn't see. Sorry to bring this up if you're an Atlanta Falcons fan, but it was the 2016-17 Super Bowl. Maybe you remember watching it, or maybe you remember hearing about it. It was, it was one of the greatest comebacks of all time in NFL football or in sports in history in general. What happened is they get to the second half of this football game and it's 28 to 3 and everybody has given up hope. Or fans probably had given up hope. And for me, I remember that night I was, we were hosting a youth Super Bowl party. We, it was a Sunday night and instead of having forefront, we're just like, everybody, we should get together, have some fun, eat some chips, have some meals, play video games, all that stuff. And then we'll turn the Super Bowl on for whoever wants to see. So we're hanging out at youth and when it gets to 28-3, I was like one of like three people that cared about the football game and everybody else was just there for the food and the hangout and all that. And so uh, they were like, oh, can, we, can we turn off the game and can we use the TV to play, to play football games? I'm like, or Madden, video games. It's like, okay, sure, I, the game's over, fine, whatever. So we, we turn off the game and I remember after 45 minutes or whatever it was, getting this notification on my phone and I don't remember exactly what it said but the gist of it was hey there's two minutes left in the game and the Patriots might come back here they have the ball they're down by eight they can make this a game they can send it to overtime they can actually come back and win it and lo and behold they do they come back and win it and I forced my way back to that TV I didn't care what the kids said but we turned the game back on and we watched the ending of that of that Super Bowl he says I will make you a pillar in the house of God in the kingdom of God, you will be a symbol of strength and power. If you're victorious, how do you be victorious? You just hold on to Jesus. You just don't give up. You just keep going. And if you do that, 
That's all you got to do. All you got to do is hold on to Jesus. And if you hold on to Jesus, then in my kingdom, when people look at your life, what they see is a pillar, a symbol of strength and power when it comes to your life. And all over your life will be written the name of God, the city of God, the new Jerusalem, and the name of Jesus. All that to say, if you just hold on to Jesus, then your entire life will tell the story of God's goodness. If you just hold on to Jesus, your entire life will be a continued work that tells the story of Jesus. Remember I said earlier that the whole Bible is about Jesus. God is a master at using broken people and broken situations to tell the story of Jesus, to tell the story of redemption. And the Bible is finished. We're not adding any more books to the 66 that are already in there, but the story of God is not finished. Your life is a part. And if you'll just hold on to Jesus, then all over your life will be the story of God. I want to give you an encouragement that will help you hold on to Jesus. I said earlier, when I read the Bible, I play this game called Where's Jesus? I want to encourage you, play that in your Bible, but also play it in your day-to-day life. In every moment, look, where's Jesus? You see, it's really easy when it's 1045 on a Sunday morning, and Dan and Jess are singing your favorite worship song, Jesus is right here. We get it. But when you go back to work on Monday to a job that you don't enjoy, working with people that annoy the crap out of you, and you got to come home and eat meals that you don't know how to cook, and life is just a drudgery, it's boring, it's plain, where's Jesus in those moments? He's there. You just got to look. Because your story, if you'll hold on to Jesus, if you'll follow Jesus, if you walk with Jesus, your whole Life will be a symbol of strength in God's kingdom. Your whole life will be a continued story of the redemptive work of Jesus if you just find Jesus and hold on. Now that's not to say that it's always going to be simple and easy to find Jesus. Sometimes life happens. Sometimes it's easy to look and you're like, oh, I can see what God is up to. I can see what he's doing. Other times it's near impossible to see Jesus. I can prove that to you with my own life. And I'm not saying these as a sob story, but there's been numbers of times in my life, including one right now, that I look around and I'm not sure how God's going to work this for his glory. But I know that if I just hold on, he will. A couple, a couple weeks ago, my aunt was diagnosed with cancer that she didn't know she had. It's, it was her fifth bout with cancer. Fifth in 50-some years of life. And just this past week, she went... She went to be with Jesus. She died, and behind her, she left her parents. Behind her, she left her husband of 33 years. Behind her, she left her two college-age daughters, my age and younger. Behind her, she left six siblings that love her. Behind her, she left dozens of nieces and nephews that care about her and love her. And I remember specifically just talking to my cousins who were my childhood best friends and trying to counsel them through this somehow and trying to give somehow a word of hope. There's nothing you can say. And as I look at this situation, even right now before my life, I ask the question, where's Jesus? And I don't have an answer. I don't look at the situation. I don't look at the picture and go, oh, there he is. I see exactly what he's doing. So guys, you just got to hold out hope. No, it's heartbreaking. It's devastating. We don't always have the answer, but you got to look and just hold on. I remember a couple years ago, my wife and I were pregnant with our first child. 
14 weeks pregnant and we went to the doctor thinking that we were going to get our first ultrasound. We were going to get to see our beautiful baby, maybe even find out the gender and it didn't happen. We found out instead that we had miscarried and that we weren't going to have the first child that we thought we would. And when we came home from the hospital that day, we were heartbroken and still breaks our hearts to think about. We didn't come home from the hospital that day and be like, God, thank you that we see exactly what you're doing. I still have no idea what that was all about. I still don't know exactly where Jesus was in all of that. But I know that if I just hold on, that somehow he's going to work his glory, his story into my life. Today, I don't know what your situation is. You might have come in here and just had a really, really bad doctor's report. Or you might be in here and you feel crippled by fear, anxiety, or depression. Crippled with doubts because the person that you've been praying for or the situation that you've been praying for for years just isn't working out. I don't have an answer. I'm not here to point and say, well, look here. Look at what God's doing. I don't know, but I know that if you will just hold on, Somehow, your life will become a pillar of strength and power in God's kingdom. And all over your life will be written the story of God, the story of Jesus, because the Bible all points to Jesus. And if you'll hold on to Jesus, your entire life will do the same. The story of God is still being written until he comes back again, and your life is a part. If you'll just hold on. Will you stand with me today? Today, I want to encourage you, wherever you're at, maybe you're following Jesus and things are going really good, I want to encourage you to stay the course. Hold on to Jesus in the good times and the bad. Maybe you're in here today and you're thinking, you know what, I, I've been following Jesus, I've been asking for him to do something, and I've been looking for him all around and I can't figure it out. I feel like giving up. Today, I hope that I can be that notification that I got on my phone during the Super Bowl two years ago that says, listen, you got to turn the game back on. Something's about to happen. Something is happening. Keep your eyes on. Hold on to hope because God is not done. So whether I need to encourage you today to stay on course or whether I need you to get back on course or whatever it may be, I pray that you will hold on to Jesus. Because if you do, here's what the Bible says. This is, this is what Philadelphia had right. They held on to Jesus, and because they held on, they had doors of opportunity swung wide open, able to reach the people that they had an extreme heart for, an opportunity for unity that had never before happened in the church, an opportunity to, to, to escape an extreme season of testing, and an opportunity that when all is said and done, and when your life is over, and when Jesus comes back, your life will be a part of the story of God. And all over your life, when people see you, they will see the story of Jesus. All of that happened, how? Because Philadelphia held on. And that can be our story too if we'll do the same. Hold on. Maybe you're in this place today and you're not even sure you've ever grabbed hold of Jesus. You're saying, I'm not sure that I've ever given my life to him. I'm not sure I'm following him, but I want to. Today is your day. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. And it's not going to be because we want to keep a tally or we want to feel good about ourselves. No, it's an opportunity for you to say yes to Jesus. And the reason we ask you to raise your hand is not for us to embarrass you or anything like that. But 
if you raise your hand, if you do something physical with your body, it solidifies in your own mind and in your own heart. Today, I made a decision for Jesus. I grabbed hold of Jesus. And we believe that can be the start of a journey that you never have to let go and you can have this story. All over your life is the story of God. If that's you today, you're in this place and you're not sure that you're, you've ever accepted Jesus, I'm going to give you this opportunity and I'm going to ask everybody to bow, close their eyes, bow their heads. And if that's you, on the count of three, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand so that we can pray with you and also so that you can know today I made a decision to follow Jesus, to grab hold of Jesus. If that's you on the count of three, raise your hand so we can pray with you. One, two, three. Thank you. Anybody else today? Thank you. You can put it right back down. Thank you. Anybody else today? Thank you, Jesus. All right, we're going to pray this prayer, especially if you raise your hand. Will you repeat it after me? But all of us together as one family are going to say these words. It's not magic. It's not going to fix everything. It's not going to mend every broken situation. But what it will do, it will get you to hold on to that Jesus. And this journey can begin here and now if you mean these words. So let's say them. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you died on the cross to save me from my sin. And I believe you rose again to give me life. Today, Jesus, I give you my life to serve you and follow you. Thank you for making me a child of God. In Jesus' name, amen. And there's one more group of people I want to I offer prayer to today. And that's the group that maybe has turned off the game. The group that has said or is tempted to say, you know, I'm, I'm tempted to throw in the towel. I'm looking for Jesus and I just don't see him. I'm looking for a hand to grab and I'm just, not, I, I'm not sure that he's around. I'm, I might walk away. Or I might give up hope. Whatever it may be, I want to encourage you today again, hold on. You have no idea what Jesus is up to. But if you just hold on, your life will tell his story. I desperately want that for my life. And you might be in a situation right here in this room where you don't know that you're holding on to Jesus and you're looking for him and you're not sure you can find him. I want to help you today by just praying for you. So if that's you, on the count of three, will you raise your hand? It's not about keeping your pride. It's not about looking strong. The Bible says that in our weakness, Christ is strong. So if we're here today and we're facing that situation, admitting that, Jesus, I'm looking and I need help holding on. I want to strengthen my grip to you, Jesus. Or take a new grip. I want to help you do that today. On the count of three, will you raise your hand so we can pray? One, two, three. Thank you. You can put it right back down. Thank you. God, I thank you for each person in this room, no matter what our story, no matter what our situation. I pray that you would help us to take the grip that we need to take. Help us to hold on tight to you so that we can have doors of opportunity opened. So that we can have unity that has never been there before. So that we can pass the test the first time. And so that our entire life can be a symbol of strength in the story of Jesus. Help us to take a new grip when we're tired. Help us to find you when we're looking. Help us in every way today, Jesus. In Jesus' name. And we all said, amen.